0: I say that today is a significant day because it does mark the 44th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade. This was a decision. uh, It was a vote of 7 to 2 on the court uh, to legalize abortion on demand in the United States. The reality of that is that we grieve that nearly 60 million lives uh, have been taken as a result of this decision. We as a nation... uh, Mark issues of tragedy. We think about the day that we live in infamy. That's Pearl Harbor. Uh, We think about September 11th, uh, 2001, where just under 3,000 lives were were taken from us. The Twin Towers, the Pentagon, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Nearly 3,000 lives. A number like 60 million. Difficult to be grasped. Imagine for just a moment Imagine for just a moment if there were to be some sort of catastrophic nuclear explosion here in the United States. And in that explosion, the entire population of Alabama, of Georgia, of Tennessee, of North Carolina, of South Carolina, of Mississippi, and Florida. Every man, woman, and child and those states were suddenly silenced. That's the impact of one vote. Now, as we spend some time in God's word this morning, and as we think about how this has really impacted our nation, here's what I need to be I want to begin with. I need to begin with, and and, and what I want to, to permeate uh all of discussion, I am certain that I'm not speaking this morning in a group this size to a congregation that has been completely untouched by this. I, I have no illusions of that. Uh, ourselves, uh, our family, our dear friends, brothers and sisters who know the real pain, who would make different decisions today if they could go back, who still weep, who still mourn, who are, are hurt in any number of ways. The message of the gospel of this is this, friends. The message of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not just some sinners, but all those who confess their sin and repent with a humble and contrite spirit. That as we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just and He forgives. Can forgive the greatest and the vilest offender who truly believes we sing. Not only sinners who have been directly a part of the loss of these 60 million lives. But also, He is the Savior of sinners who have stood by silently because of cowardice, because of indifference, or even just because it's more convenient to to stand by rather than participate. God forgives because Jesus paid for these sins in full. Hear that, know that, trust in that fully. But that repentance thing, that repentance thing I, I mentioned there, those who repent. That means that we will move forward. Forgiven. But resolved to live differently. I've heard it simply put. That repentance. Repentance is a, is a U-turn in our lives. Where we recognize that the direction we're headed. Leads only to catastrophe and death. And it's a U-turn where we change. That's the repentance that, that our confession of our sins calls for. That we would say you know. That though my sin is great. For however it has manifested itself in in my life. Though my sin is great, that as I repent, the Lord forgives and He places my feet on a new and heavenly direction. The finished work of Jesus Christ pardons all sins and it provides all righteousness for everyone who believes. But let us turn from the wicked and live as salt and light among those who need to hear and experience the gospel. A biblical picture A biblical picture of this that we need to to embrace as a nation, always as a people of God. The Bible speaks about this forgiveness cover to cover, a true repentance and a a true uh, resolve to live unto righteousness. Uh, But let's consider specifically King David. Acts chapter 13, Paul in Antioch, he was told, he said, give us a word of encouragement. And he said, well, let's consider David a man after God's own heart is the way that Paul describes him there before the listeners. Now think about this man after God's own heart, King David. Imagine that day in the life of King David. Uh, We refer to it as the the sin spiral, the sin spiral in the life of King David. It was a day when he, the king, found himself by his choices, and by their consequences, abandoning his duty as a king. You see, it was the season where the kings led the people, the armies, into war, and he did not go. He stayed behind. And I do believe it speaks of him walking around on top of, of, his, of his home. And as he walked around, I do believe, uh, given uh, what else we know about King David, I do believe that that was, would have been a moment of pride for King David, looking around and, and knowing that he was king of all that he surveyed. And as he, he looked around, uh, probably a bit fuller of himself than he ought to be, uh, the narrative narrative says uh, he saw Bathsheba. He, he, felt, he engaged in lust. He engaged in the theft of someone else's wife. He engaged in adultery. He engaged in deception as he tried to trick Bathsheba's husband Uriah. Called him home, tried to trick him into thinking that the child that she bore was his not the product of their adultery. Continued repeatedly getting him drunk, doing other things. Uriah showed himself to be a righteous, an upright man. Then he, King David, continued on to conspire to murder as he ordered Uriah's commander in the most wicked of ways, folding a piece of paper, placing the king's seal upon it, handing it to Uriah and says, give this to your commander. And it was Uriah's own death sentence told the commander, said, when you're in battle, when the battle is hot, withdraw your troops, leave Uriah out there. Uriah abandoned on the battlefield, was killed in battle because the king wanted to cover up his sin. There's no denying that King David was a great sinner. And we recognize that too because we are great sinners. Prideful, selfish, harboring bitterness, hate, harboring hatred. We can be lazy, we can be cowardly, we can be deceitful. Our great sin may manifest itself in ways that are different than David. But the question is this. How could a man guilty like that be called a man after God's own heart? How could we be called men and women after God's own heart? It's through a repentance. A repentance that is notorious, as notorious as our sin a repentance that is widespread as our sin. King David was a great sinner, but King David was also a great repenter. When he was rebuked by Nathan, Nathan had to to come gently to the king, had to rebuke him in his sin, had to tell him a story. King David was indignant by the story. And Nathan said, oh, but King David, you are that man about whom you are so indignant. And what did King David do? He wrote... Psalm 51 Psalm 51, uh, we heard read as our call to worship today. Uh, we, we, we saw actually in, and in the, uh, the, um, uh, the operatory uh, scripture, uh, that we, we, we bring a humble and a contrite heart. Psalm 51. What is Psalm 51? Psalm 51, if you read it, the beginning of it is called the superscription. is that description of what this particular psalm was used for. The very first words there in the superscription, superscription are this, that this is to the choir master. So what that meant was King David penned these words and handed it to the choirmaster, And he said, we will sing this in the assembly. My repentance will be on the lips of the people. My repentance will be as an even more notorious than my sin. It would be sung. It would be shouted repeatedly in the symbol. Let all the people know the words of the king. When he said, I am a sinner. He said... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from our sin. And as we begin today, I wanted to make sure that you heard that and know that however our sin has manifested itself to to this point in our lives, that there is forgiveness, and particularly as we look at something as significant as the fact that a a child is not safe even in the womb of His mother, in our nation. We pray, and we know that there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy, and there is love of Almighty God. Our text today is Psalm chapter 8. And Psalm chapter 8, keep in mind, the same king, a man after God's own heart, the same king who sin was great, the same king who called the people together to know His repentance writes these words by inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet... You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes under the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this, your word and Father. Did we hear it? We hear it from King David as he proclaims it in writing, Father, as your spirit moved him to do so. And we echo, Lord God, how majestic is your name. May your name in this time be praised. Amen. We are not single issue folk. Apart from Jesus. And Jesus raised, Jesus resurrected. We are not simply about one issue that we see around us and say, that is going to be our entire focus. That we we look around and we see, essentially, in a text like this, that life matters to God. And if it matters to God, so should it matter to us. Today, we'll hear repeatedly things in the news, uh, and even as we walk out onto the streets... We'll see people shouting, black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter. Christians must proclaim, Christians, we must proclaim amen to each of those statements. Yes, black lives matter. Yes, the lives of our police officers matter. Yes, the lives of our children, the lives of each of us matter. It must matter to us if all life created in the image of God matters to Him, it must matter to us, and if it matters to us, we must protect it. We must defend it, and we must look out after our neighbor, loving them as we do ourselves, particularly those who are unable to protect and defend themselves. So we look at this text, and we, we're faced with some questions, of uh, the questions that the psalmist answers. And these questions that, that David answers are, are significant as we look at, at how we are to live in this world. And we begin with this whole idea of, of, of who and what is God. Now that's a, a a rather philosophical question to most. You think about the philosophy professor who gives his final exam and he says one question on the exam What define God and give three examples. Well, there are no three examples. And the definition of God, we need to understand that we can never fully comprehend God. We can apprehend him. We can, we can draw close. We can know him as he has revealed himself to us. Just this last Sunday night, as we gathered the junior and the senior high schoolers together, we began by talking about the idea that revelation precedes relationship. The idea that God makes himself known to us. And as he makes himself known to us, we know him. My wife can't know me unless I make myself known to her. And you can't know me as your pastor unless I let you know, unless I'm transparent and and tell you of myself and you to me. Relationship is dependent on revelation. And so we look, and how has God made Himself known? Well, the first and the last verse of the text before us, and I pray that you keep your Bible open there to Psalm 8, the first and the last verses are sweet songs of admiration of the name of God. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all of the earth. It speaks about the majesty of who God is. And think about that. We think about names. Names is not simply the handle that we put on somebody so that we can get their attention when we need to. I remember that after Carol and I got married, it was an interesting thing. We didn't have Thomas till about six years into our marriage. And what was particularly interesting is until that point, I never had a name that I could call uh, Carol's mother, <laughs> at least not to her face. I didn't have a, a name. I wasn't going to call her Margaret. And then suddenly the grandparents, we had Nana and we had Pop and we had Grandma and Grandpa. You know, we suddenly had names. Names are, are more than simply a handle by which we can shout across the room and get somebody's attention. We think about how God was about the uh, the business of really of changing names as Abram became Abraham, right? Uh Paul, uh, Saul became Paul, Simon became Peter. We, we see that God, as we're new creations, He would give names defining uh, who we are. And, and God would say, tell, tell the people, I am. His name is majestic even among the people that do not hold it so. Even among uh, the wicked and the rebellious, the unrighteous, that God's name is still majestic in all of the earth. And this is God, God whose glory is above even that of the heavens. If you look at the text there, it says, You have set your glory, at the end of verse one, above the heavens. As we look and we see the glory of creation, we say that as wonderful as that is, it doesn't begin to approach how incredible and majestic is God. But it goes on Who is this God? This is the God, the creator of all things. Verses three and verse five speaks about the incredible works of the fingers of God. God the creator. And verse 5, it even speaks about him being the source of honor. That man has been crowned with glory and honor. And we must recognize that only a king can place the crown on another. That only he can bestow that. That which is his, that he bestows that as we, his heirs in Christ, are crowned with glory and honor. He is also the source of order, it says. It speaks about us as being a little lower than the heavenly beings. And it also speaks about Him being the source of all authority, giving us dominion over all of creation. So it begins by, he begins by pointing us and saying, when we deal with issues of life, when we deal with issues of our lives, we begin and we end with recognizing the majesty of God. But then, the, the very real question that uh, King David asks and answers. He says, oh, what is man? What is man? Well, we think about first, man, it speaks about man is made by God. When we look at verse 5 there, it says that you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We we think about God has made us. Now, if man is an accident, by the way, if man is simply the consequence of the combination of all of the elements combined with lots of time and a little bit of luck... (laughs) If, if man is just the eventual state of lucky mud, then all these statements fall into meaninglessness. Life doesn't have value if it is just happenstance that has been given enough time to become reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, we have to understand that creation, that being made by God, gives value. Accidental existence. If it came in through no effort if it came into being uh, through no intention then it has no value genesis 1 chapter 26 genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and verse 27 says god said let us make man in our image after, the, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, made him male and female. In this way he created him. This is the description of our creation. Now much, as, much talk has been made about how long did this take, where did this happen, when did this happen. A lot of study of the book of, of Genesis and, and, and many Christian, good scholarly, Bible-believing, God-loving Christians have some disagreements about when and where and that sort of thing. But the undeniable truth is this, that God has made us. God has made us. It's not simply that we came into being and God then all of a sudden paid attention to something that just happened outside of His control. He deliberately and purposely knit us together in His image, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Not only are we made by God, but we are marked out by God. It says in verse 4 that He's mindful of us. Mindful of us. That means that that He takes note of us, that he, He pays attention to us. He has a relationship with us. This is vital. We are special to him. Especially as we look in verse 3 when it talks about, when I look at the heavens, do you see how he's framing this? I look at the heavens and imagine King David looking out upon the night sky. This shepherd who spent so much of his early life in the dark fields tending the shepherds and looking up in the heavens that are not dimmed at all by city lights. And seeing the the splendor of, of, of creation itself. He saw a very, very big universe, a huge universe before him that he couldn't even begin to understand its magnitude, that we are only now continuing to uncover the magnitude of that, that that one star that he would see in the sky during the day, that one star of the sun would be one of 200 million in a galaxy that is 100,000 light years across. Is that not extraordinary? And then that galaxy would be one of hundreds of millions of galaxies that exist and even, even if we take, you know, the, the extremes of science fiction that we, we enjoy, the Star Trek and the Star Wars and these things and the extremes of science fiction, and even using uh, the, the novel leaps that they come up with of, of light speed and warp speed and all that sort of thing, you begin to realize, given the, the breadth of all of creation, that man in the history of man could not hope to even travel just a small part. Of, of, of what is out there, even with the imagination of science fiction. David says, when I look at the stars, when I see the glory of creation, I have to ask. Now, the expanse of the heavens, the size of the universe, it does not press us to embrace the insignificance of man. It, it doesn't drive us to say, well, then obviously we're nothing. Because this revelation that we have, God's word spoken to us, speaking to us about who he is and then speaking to us about who we are and the relationship that he established with us. It highlights the love of God to understand that in all of this wondrous expanse that God pays attention and loves and has desired that relationship with us through Jesus Christ. We have the attention of God. We have the grace of God. And we know the significance of man as image bearers of the God who has made us. God who knows the numbers of grains of sand on the beach knows your name, knows the details of your day, knows the seconds of your life, knows the extent of your sin, and has said, you are my child. And, And for that sin, I've given my son because I love you. You are not insignificant, lucky mud. You are my child, who I created. And and it goes on to say, we are crowned. We're crowned by God. Verses 5 and 6, crowned with glory and honor, given dominion, an echo of of creation, an echo of Genesis, an an amazing thing. And we know, as Romans 8 says, that that the crowning there, we understand that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, heirs of God, children of the King. I was talking with one of our officers this weekend as we were looking at the beauty of the river that was flowing by where we were staying and, the, and even the magnitude of the, the rain as it came through and that sort of thing and talking about the idea of ecology and wanting to be good stewards of creation around. And, and far too many who, who do desire that we be good stewards of creation, not polluting, not destroying the world, uh, tend to view man as a blight. You know, the world would be great if man wasn't a part of it. And that's not true. We've been given the responsibility to take care of this world, but we have been given to be a steward of something much more important. Yes, yes, we shouldn't pollute, we shouldn't destroy the world, but let us see that there's something far more valuable, something far more valuable that we're stewards over. If God values life, if God values human life, even that over and above the the vast heavens, if God values life, helpless babies, the smallest among us. We must steward over that. We must care for that. How do we do that? How do we cherish life in light of what we're reading here in in Psalms chapter 8? How do we cherish life? Brothers and sisters, we we must embrace a simple yet a far-reaching truth. We we need to to wrap our minds around this. You cannot worship and glorify God and at the same time treat His image-bearing creation with contempt in any way. Hear that carefully. We cannot worship and glorify God and treat human beings with contempt. Now that that has far-reaching implications. If we say that we love God and we do not love our brother, we talked about this in one of those those early mornings where us sleep-deprived men were deprived of a little bit more sleep and were wrapping our minds around with a cup of coffee and God's open word and looking at 1 John and in 1 John 4, 20, it says, if we say that we love our neighbor and we do, excuse me, if we say that we love God and we do not love our neighbor, then we show that our profession of that love is a lie. On this anniversary of the day where a legal decision has made such a an impact on this world, uh, we're faced with with an examination of what does God's word have to say. And we think about God's word that, uh, that King David would have known, God's word that we know today. We think about the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment very simply states, thou shalt not murder. And we look at that and we say, well, that seems to be fairly cut and dried, fairly clean, fairly straightforward. I understand it. Let's move on. We can get to things like thou shalt not covet. That's, that's kind of difficult, right? But thou shalt not murder, we can, we can kind of say okay to that. But we need to understand that it has far-reaching implications. When Jesus speaks about that, He says, it's not simply that you don't go out and take another human life. It's if you harbor hatred in your heart, if you devalue human life, if you look and say, raka, that is, you have no worth, you have no value, I discredit you entirely, then we are guilty of that law. If we don't love as we ought to love, we are guilty of that law. The Westminster Larger Catechism, they... A Faithful Statement of Summary of of Scriptural Truth, Uh, the 135th of the larger catechism, talks about what the Sixth Commandment requires of us. And just to give you an excerpt of it, it is a larger catechism, very lengthy answers. But uh, the, the answer says this, the Sixth Commandment requires us to do our best to make every lawful effort to preserve our life and the lives of others. Very good so far. In the pursuit of that goal, we must defend others from violence. Going on, it says, we should also harbor charitable thoughts. We should love. We should have compassion. We should have meekness and gentleness and kindness towards others. We should be tolerant of others, ready to be reconciled, patiently put up and forgive injuries against us, and return good for evil. Finally, we should provide for and comfort those in distress, and we should protect and defend the innocent. Far-reaching implications to those simple words, thou shalt not murder. The sixth commandment, I, as, as I've taught the commandments in Bible studies and, and, and series, uh, one thing I've, I've always encouraged people to do is that as you look at the thou shalt nots, what is truly the thou shalt of that? When you say thou shalt not steal, Paul talks about that in Ephesians. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. Is that enough, by the way? Let him who steals, steal no longer? I love the question a, uh, a counselor once asked, a a man, he says, uh, when is a thief not a thief? It's, it's not when he's not stealing. All you got there is a thief in between jobs. When is a thief not a thief? Paul in Ephesians says, uh, let he who steals, steal no longer yet work for a living, that he would have something to give. A thief is not a thief when he's a giver. A murderer is not a murderer, not when he stops murdering. Again, you simply have an assailant who is, is, is out of work right now. An assassin who's, who's looking for a job. When is a murderer not a murderer? A murderer is not a murderer when he loves. When he loves as Christ loves. When he loves when he gives sacrificially of himself rather than sacrificing others for his desires. The issues of the day that we face, brothers and sisters, are real. Abortion, human trafficking, the racial divides. We think about the, the issue, the statements, and you see this on Facebook, you see it out there all, 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 all over the place. And, and hear me carefully and, and, and prayerfully. And, and take me to issue, if, if to task, if you, if you disagree, but, but only do so after prayerfully considering. When you, you see somebody holding a sign that says black lives matter. Well, well, patently that's true. Black lives do matter. Black lives matter, that is true. But before we respond with something like, well, all lives matter, also a true statement. But why are you saying that? Are you saying that quickly to rebuke and to argue? It sounds like a minimization of what they're saying. We need to agree yes, black lives matter. Because what we say when we talk about abortion is that unborn lives matter. Yes, they do. But you know what? Born lives matter too. We're, but we're not arguing. And, and so when, when, when somebody stands, you may not agree with, with the way that they're going about it. You may not agree with all the peripheral issues that they're bringing into it. But the, the statement prima facie, the statement on the face of it says black lives matter. And we say, amen, black lives do matter. I join you in proclaiming that. When then the issue becomes police lives matter, amen, they do. We don't pit those against each other. We say lives matter. They do matter because they matter to God. We must agree. It's true. Let's not argue. But let's let's affirm that life as God has created it is wondrous. We also see in this issue of abortion. And we ask the question, have we gone too far as a nation? Have, Have we come too far as a place? Nearly 60 million lives. And we say, can we ever turn back? Brothers, sisters, with God, all things are possible. In prayer we must plead for revival and our hope is not in a new president. Our hope is not in a, in a new Congress, new senators, new mayors, new governors, new laws. The hope is in eternal God. Now, we, we, vote, we, we, pray, we vote for godly people. We pray for godly laws to be enacted. But we put our trust, our hope in God and God alone. How, how do we love life? How, how do we love life as God loves life? We boldly speak for those who can't speak for themselves. We, we ought to be self-sacrificially loving women who find themselves in unbelievably difficult circumstances. We may not be able to understand those circumstances. We may never have been in that place, but we need to understand that they need the grace of God. They need the support of, of men and women who say there is an answer, there is hope. We need to pursue as a church, and as churches coming together, alternatives, support, adoption options, Love, compassion, to make provision for those when we say, oh, oh, would you you bring that child into the world that they might know adoption? And their question is how? And we as a church need to provide answers and solutions and say, here's how we will help. We need to tell them when they find themselves abandoned and that they believe that no one cares, they need to know that God cares. And because God cares, as we see the plague of human trafficking in our land, men and women sold like particularly young women sold like possessions to return to the days where where families are torn apart and taken far away to feel abandoned isolated abused friendless and their heart says who will hear my cry god hears it and we must too all right so all right so that we're at, we're at a point where you say oh my goodness Brandon Oh my goodness, you just laid this on us and wow, I, I, I feel too guilty to even go home and eat lunch. That, that's not my intent. The intent is not that we would be guilted into doing anything. Our, my intent is that we would pray and we would educate ourselves about the realities of the world around us and say, I have been given the blessing of understanding and knowing that God has the answers and I want to take those answers in real ways. I don't know how, but I want to know how. And and I want to talk, I want to pursue, I want to invest my time, I want to sacrificially give of my time to understand so that I can help in a small way. But then you say, oh, but a small way, I can't even begin to make a dent. It'd be like going into the, the great river that we saw flowing behind the house this weekend as the rains kept coming down and trying to stem it with a spoon. You think, I can't do it. Well, think about this in our closing this morning. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is an incredible text. I mentioned this once uh, in worship uh, before, but I count on short memories sometimes <clears throat> so that you hear it and go, oh, that's a, that's, that's a new one. That's well, it's not new. That's good because I have a limited number of stories, and over our years ahead, you're going to hear the same stories, and I just count on you having short-term memory problems and laughing all again. <laughs> Psalm 8. Brothers and sisters, did you think about that we are trying to drain the ocean with a teaspoon? My little efforts, what good are they? Well, consider this. King David, as he's writing this, he, he says these. He says, you have established strength, where? Out of the mouths of babies and infants. Yes, that speaks about their value. Yes, that speaks about a, a direct implication of what we're talking about today. But what has he chosen to say? That which is weak and small among us is ordained to do amazing things. And if you look back up at the very top of this particular text, Psalm chapter eight, it's written, it says to the chief musician, to the chief musician, on the giddh, or some translations would say on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. I don't think anybody in this house, even Bernie, doesn't own a giddeth but a giddet was a musical instrument. It was a strange musical instrument. I've uh, mentioned several times in the Psalms, particularly in this one. I think it is amazing that it's in this one. Because what is he speaking about in that verse I just mentioned? That he is, we've been ordained of strength in the mouths of babies and infants, that in the small things great powers manifest. And we think about that instrument of Gath. What was Gath? Gath was a city just like Gaul. Gaul and Gath were two of the great cities of the Pentapolis. The Pentapolis was the, the nation, the, the kingdom of the Philistines. And the kingdom of the Philistines, we look back upon that and we see the treacherous history of, of the Jews and the Philistines in the Old Testament, but none of the events of that rise to the occasion that we see of the largest of the Philistines ever to set foot on the battlefield, that of Goliath. Goliath standing on the battlefield mocking God, cursing God, and seeking to kill God's people, seeking to murder and take innocent life, and people cowering. And yet it was on that day that a babe, a small child, not because, simply because he was good at using a slingshot. It wasn't that David got off a lucky shot. But on the battlefield, David marched boldly. And that day, he proclaimed the truth that God will give me the victory. Now imagine this. The psalm is not simply something that was read and forgotten about. The psalms were used to sing and to praise and to shout and worship. How majestic is your name in all the earth, Lord God! O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name! The people would shout that and praise that. Now imagine this, that that that, that that truth would be reinforced at the sound of the instrument of the Philistines. In the worship, God's people would hear the fact that that on the battlefield, little David, because he stood with the Lord was as the musician strummed, the instrument of those who have been defeated by the power of God. That even that would praise the God whose name is majestic on the earth. As you pray, as you consider, as you look to say, Lord, how would you use me? Do not think that your efforts are insignificant. That as you do them for the Lord in all things, your evangelism, your worship, your prayer, your praise, those little things you do for your children, for the family of God, and certainly those things that you do for the helpless among us. Oh, They do mighty things because our Lord is majestic in all the earth. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this text. And Father, we do confess. We confess, Lord God, that we have often turned not to look. We have not paid attention where we ought. Father, we have ignored the truth around us. And even, Father, we've come to be comfortable with it because we see it every day. But Lord, we live in a land that needs Jesus. We live in a, in a land that needs to know that we would be a voice for those who can't speak, that we would reinforce human life in every step that we can, that we would love as Christ loves. For it was in the death of Christ that we know life. It is in his resurrection that we know resurrection. And Father, it is in the laying down of our lives that not only do we follow in the pattern of Christ, but we do so in love for our neighbor's that we would love them as Christ has loved us. And Father, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us vision that that we would see a a great change in this day, that the great ship would turn? And Father, that we would see a nation that rejoices in proclaiming the value of God-created, God-image-bearing life. Would you use our small teaspoon? to relocate the mighty ocean. Would you use our stones on the battlefield to slay the giant, that you would get the glory and we would rejoice greatly and shout how majestic is your name in all the earth, through Jesus our Lord. Amen.